Hold on to your butts, everyone, because today we're talking about the legendary John Williams and his impact on movie themes. Hello, and welcome to Looking to Score, where we geek out about movie scores and their composers. I'm Brian Brennan, and along with me is my co-host, international man of mystery, Brett Blake. Brett, how are you? I am terrific. Thanks for having me. Okay, so before we get into things, uh, we'd like to do a little segment we like to call Pre-Show Picks, where we give you some recommendations as to what we're listening to and would like you to check out. So um, let's get started. Brett, do you want to tell us what you're listening to? Okay, so recently I've been into Jerry Goldsmith's Omen Trilogy scores. Um, But in particular, what I wanted to single out today is his score for the third in that trilogy, which is called The Final Conflict. And what's kind of unique about this one is that he still brings over his patented sort of satanic sound that he developed in the previous two scores. But he marries that with a very grandiose, almost but not quite over-the-top religious element. If you were to listen to the climax of the Final Conflict score, you would think you're listening to a biblical mm. epic in terms of the scope and, and the size of the, of the massive sort of religiosity that Goldsmith conjures up here. It's one of the scores that I think a lot of the diehard Goldsmith fans have a lot of fondness for, but it sort of flies under the radar to to people who maybe aren't quite at that sort of level of Goldsmith devotee. Um, And it's also one of those cases where he delivered a score that is frankly just much, much better than the actual movie, because the actual movie is not very good, but the score is excellent. Awesome. All right, so I'm going to put out a score from 1984, and it is Toto's Dune. Now, I have to say, I actually kind of like this score a little bit more than uh, the new one by Hans Zimmer. Mm, controversy. I know. Shocking. Uh, but I, I, lo- I like the main theme to this soundtrack. It's It's got a little bit of foreboding dread and power to it that I like. But like Zimmer score, there are also several kinds of mysterious cues with some spectacular ethereal voices that lend themselves to the environment of the story. And, you know, it works out great, I think. Now, on the other hand, it does go into really cheesy 80s rock synth percussion, which doesn't really feel right. But if you can get past that, I think there's a lot to enjoy about this score. I think it's really interesting. So it's definitely worth a listen and probably the one of the better things that came out of that movie as well. I so, think that's safe to say. Yes. <laughs> All right. So let's get into it. So I think we can agree that John Williams is probably the most recognizable composer of all time. I would I would think so. Yes. Like even if you don't know who he is, you can still recognize his themes. Yes. I think he's he's probably the composer that has the most themes that the average person recognizes, even if they don't necessarily know the name of the man who composed them. Right. So that being said, 
there's there's this difference between theme and motif that we mm-hmm. kind of want to get out of the way first because I think they can get kind of uh, interchanged as far as terms go. Sure. Now this, like, I'm I'm not a music theory person. Like, I have a I do have a background in music, but I'm not as adept as others would be in this area. Sure. So, you kind of want to look at theme as the simplest sounding melody of the piece, and this comes from theme and variation in music, uh, definition, form, and examples. So I like to look at the two with a delicious analogy. We've got a burrito. The shell is your main theme, and then wrapped inside are your score's ingredients or motifs and whatnot. So theme is pretty much the simplest sounding melody of a piece, whereas a motif is more of a short musical phrase. Now, you kind of have a different um, way of looking at it. Sure. I mean, it's it's a little less technical and it's a little more sort of just gut reaction based. But both themes and motifs have some kind of identifiable melodic content that's representing something. But a motif tends to be much shorter, um, much more blunt, almost, you could say. The way I've always looked at it is all motifs are themes in that they're conveying some sort of a thematic idea. But not all themes are motifs because uh, a full-fledged theme could be many, many bars. It could be dozens upon dozens of notes, whereas a motif is probably something much, much shorter. Um, I, a great example of that is the, the five notes um, from Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which is um, pretty direct. It's very, very simple, but it's extremely memorable. It is something you could hum if you wanted to, and it directly represents something in the context of the film. Yeah, it's almost like a musical fragment. Now, even before we get into John Williams' impact on themes, we should probably give some context about the general state of film scoring in the mid-70s, and this would be prior to Jaws and Star Wars, kind of the big blockbuster films of mm-hmm. the time. So it's it's been cited that Bonnie and Clyde was probably one of the precursors to how scores operated differently from like the more grandiose orchestral scores in that they used a banjo theme to kind of highlight bad characters, if you will. Like Mm -hmm. it was, it was a joyous occasion. So I think that would kind of be the turning point for this. Um, Do you have anything that you want to add to that? I would say that's definitely a turning point, but then I would also go to another film from 1967, which is The Graduate, simply because so much of that film there is there is a little bit of of actual composed score, but everybody remembers that the music to that movie because of the Simon and Garfunkel songs. It's scored basically with with pop music, mm-hmm. and that was a very unusual thing. And then you can carry that on a couple of years later to Easy Rider, which similarly does not really have a ton, if any, of of dramatic underscore, but it's just a lot of contemporary songs that are placed in there. And that's sort of, I mean, Easy Rider marks the shift for Hollywood in in a couple of different ways, but it's sort of the culmination of the Bonnie and Clyde graduate idea of maybe we don't have to invest a lot in these big, lush orchestral scores. We can get by by sort of tapping into the more contemporary zeitgeist of what's the music that is popular right now and use that to drive our films. 
So from the late 60s, then going into the early 70s, pop music, uh, jazz, funk, these all became sort of the the primary go-to styles for a lot of movies. There are exceptions. I mean, obviously, John Williams was already working in this time, and he was already delivering fairly classic style orchestral scores. The Cowboys Mm -hmm. from the early 70s is a great example. But for the most part, you saw a dramatic shift away from what you had in the 50s and 60s with sort of the big epic Miklos Rocha sound that that conveyed a, a sense of scope and scale and even a shift away from maybe the smaller scores like the Elmer Bernstein type stuff, uh, sure. To Kill a Mockingbird, things like that, although he obviously did big scores like The Great Escape and The Ten Commandments as well. But um, in the early 70s, big, robust, sweeping scores were very much the outlier. They were the exception. They were not the rule. And that would change pretty quickly, and it would change primarily because of John Williams. Right. And that would be in 1977 with, of course, Star Wars. Yes. Now, I think it's important not to exclude Jaws from the conversation because it came out in 75. John Williams, of course, won the Oscar for it. And the film is also credited as being the first summer blockbuster. So do you think Star Wars is the beginning of the renaissance of the big orchestral sound, or do you, do you think Jaws is? Jaws, to me, is sort of like the it's the prelude to what Star Wars would then deliver. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a very memorable score. It sold a lot of records, you know, won the Oscar. But even still in like in 76, you're still getting the carryover of what the approach was from the early 70s for the most part. It's Star Wars where that score, really the score itself became kind of a cultural touchstone, even much more than Jaws did. So I would say Jaws begins to pave the way and then Star Wars sort of delivers on this idea of the big romantic score is now back. So while we're on the subject of Jaws, let's kind of talk about the importance of theme in film when it's used uh, versus when it isn't. So I'll let you run with this because you're kind of the Jaws expert here. Okay, well, I appreciate that. (laughs) Um, I mean, the thing about Jaws is everybody knows the shark theme. Um, And in fact, this might be a great place to to insert a little snippet of that so we can hear just exactly what the Jaws theme is, even though probably everybody knows what that sounds like. So it's it's very memorable. It's very simple. Um, he can sort of vary the the tempo of it. It could be very slow and suspenseful. It can very, be very sort of fast and chaotic. But what's interesting about this in terms of the idea of how Williams uses a theme is that he he plays fair with the audience. 
he never uses the theme for a a fake out. Like a great example is in in Jaws, there's a sequence where you think you see you see a shark's fin, and it turns out that it's these two kids playing a prank. Well, you don't hear the shark's theme at mm-hmm. all during this little sequence. And Williams talked about how well. I'm not using the shark's theme here because the shark is not really here at all. It's a prank. So he's he's subtly conveying to the audience that this is not really the source of of the threat. But then knowing that he does that, he can still withhold the shark theme when the shark is around and then sort of spring it on the audience as almost a a surprise effect. Um, and, And it works pretty well in that regard. And Obviously, it's it's one of the most memorable themes of all time. I'm going to kind of piggyback off this because the one that comes to mind for me is the Omaha Beach scene in Saving Private Ryan. You have the battle itself, which is only highlighted with sound and the environment around the characters. So the lack of music there, I think, is what makes it really powerful. I think a lesser composer or director might have scored the battle sequence. Absolutely. But there's this really warm and reverent theme that occurs only after the violence has ended and never really in the battle scenes as much, um, just particularly at that moment. So here is Omaha Beach. So placement is another uh, subject that we want to delve into, like deciding where to use a specific theme. And we have some examples to share as well. First off, from Raiders of the Lost Ark is the Desert Chase theme. It highlights the heroic and triumphant moments of the movie. And the, the Raiders march really kicks in when Indy takes control of the truck in this scene. So um, I'll talk more about the Raiders theme later, but that's uh, one of the biggest moments in that particular music cue. Another moment would be the escape or the chase scene from E.T. The main theme here is used to drive and build up the climactic scene. And then, you know, in the movie, once the kids on the bikes fly over everyone, that's when the main theme kicks in. So it's, it's a very triumphant moment as well.
So another really interesting usage of theme in sort of the John Williams catalog to me is those five notes from Close Encounters. And it's interesting because that motif is actually a part of the story of the movie. So it's a diegetic element. And diegetic means it's part of the universe of the movie as we're watching it. So in the movie, these five themes exist as this sort of fragmentary greeting or warning. We don't know exactly what it is, but it's it's some mode of communication with these extraterrestrials. But at the end of the movie, after we've heard people within the film playing different sort of variations of this motif, Williams finally incorporates it fully into the orchestral underscore. And it's sort of it, it becomes the sort of climax musically of that score. And it's it's pretty terrific. Then just one other thing about theme. So one of the final things to talk about, at least in terms of John Williams, is knowing when or when not to sort of rigorously stick to your assignment of what does this theme represent, either for a character or a place or an object. And there's sort of two examples that immediately come to my mind where Williams sort of breaks the rule of thematic assignment essentially just for great dramatic effect and because it sounds good. And they both come from the Star Wars series. The first is in the original Star Wars, when Darth Vader kills Obi-Wan Kenobi, we get this big sweeping statement of Princess Leia's theme. Now, she's she's in the scene, but the scene is not about her really in any way. It's mm -hmm. about Luke witnessing what has just happened and them fleeing. But the way Williams uses Leia's theme, it, you can't imagine that scene playing any other way. And similarly, uh, towards the end of Empire Strikes Back, when they're on Cloud City and they're trying to, Princess Leia is, is uh, she's being dragged away and she sees Luke and she's trying to warn him that it's a trap. Do we hear Luke's theme? Do we hear Leia's theme at this point? No, we hear Yoda's theme. Yoda, who is not present at all at Cloud City, but Williams uses it because it sounds great. And that's when you've got themes that are strong enough and that somehow emotionally fit the undercurrent of a scene, you have the leeway then to sort of break free of, okay, this theme is for this person or this place. And you then have a little bit more freedom to just use whatever sounds good. But it has to sound really good in order to be able to get away with it. You have to have done this with some amount of skill or else it probably wouldn't work. Now, since we're talking a little about movie series, uh, most of the time themes can change over the course of these series. 
Sure. Um, and whether that be to tell a narrative story or just thematic development, there's there's always some kind of variation that plays out as the series progresses. Do you want to tell us a little about your observations on the Star Wars trilogy? Just specifically, I'll highlight how Williams has sort of evolved the main theme of Star Wars. So the main theme is what we hear. It's that opening blast during the the main title crawl of every Star Wars movie. And technically, if you read the liner notes of the original Star Wars album, that is Luke Skywalker's theme. So you hear it in that that opening blast, and then you don't hear it again until we see Luke Skywalker for the first time, which is in a queue called The Moisture Farm. And uh, you hear sort of a very subdued but you know, heroic, optimistic version of the theme. It's used pretty specifically for Luke throughout the original trilogy. Now, by the time you get to the prequels, really the only time you ever hear that theme is during the opening titles. And that's because obviously Luke has not been born yet. When he is finally born at the end of Revenge of the Sith, we do hear his theme in the underscore. But he's pretty strict about keeping this theme in terms of its usage in the movies outside of the opening titles for Luke. Now, when we get to the sequel trilogy, Williams uses it a bit more liberally for sequences that don't really involve Luke in any way. There's a, an action sequence called Scherzo for X-Wings from The Force Awakens that is kind of entirely built upon sort of the, the skeleton of Luke's theme. And uh, one of the big climactic moments at the end of The Rise of Skywalker is an unreleased cue called Lando's Arrival. And that entire cue is Luke Skywalker's theme. So why did Williams decide to use the theme much more than he did in the prequels for stuff that doesn't really involve Luke? It's an interesting question. He hasn't been asked about it, but I suspect it's because the Luke Skywalker we see in the sequels is fairly different in terms of personality from the one that we saw in the original trilogy. And maybe Williams felt that that theme no longer really could represent him in the underscore anymore. So he sort of created some additional thematic material. There's a there's a theme called the Jedi Steps in The Force Awakens, which has sort of a mysterious quality. And then there's there's sort of a secondary theme that shows up in The Last Jedi that is used more primarily to depict Luke than Luke's own actual theme is. All right, I'm going to talk a little bit about the evolution of the Indiana Jones music. I think what's interesting is that with this is that much of the main theme's variation depends on the film's subject matter, but the Raiders' March is obviously the piece that unites all the movies. Mm -hmm. So the first installment of Raiders is, as a movie, to me, it's just pure adventure. So the main theme of Raiders' March uh, is usually playing out during the more triumphant moments or when adventure is about to begin. 
So you kind of hear that with the traveling map sequences. And you also get these really mysterious, supernatural, chilling themes uh, that relate to the Ark. So the map room and the miracle of the Ark are specific ones here. This is from an interview with John Williams, and you can find it on the uh, Complete Indiana Jones soundtracks, but he talks about the music in these moments kind of luring us in, that it's something beautiful, you know, like when they open the ark for the first time, it's it's bringing us in, it's beautiful, we want to see it, and then suddenly it's flipped on its head and becomes this really dark and torturous kind of unpleasant sound. to I'm going to jump forward some more to uh, the last crusade just because it's a little bit more reverent but it also plays into this idea of looking up to your heroes and the father son aspect as well so you you get that gentle kind of regal feel in this cue the keeper of the grail Moving on to Temple of Doom, um, this narratively is an escape movie versus the other two being going on a journey, mm-hmm. a quest, if you will. So in contrast, there's these much more darker frenetic themes, and it uses less of the Raiders March here. And instead, we get uh, the Slave Children's Crusade, which is really a driving brass heavy march that is a play on Short Round's theme heard here. And I'm only going to touch on Kingdom of the Crystal Skull just because... You don't have to. I I don't have to, but I do think there's a couple of nice themes in here that Williams describes as kind of uh, his homages to femme fatales and old sci-fi movies. So we get a nice villain theme in uh, Arena's theme and then the skull theme as well.
All right. Before we wrap this puppy up, I want to talk to you about your top five personal picks for oh John God. Williams scores. So mine are in order. I don't think yours are, but no, uh, I'm just uh, I'm I'm, I'm going to improvise. <laughs> All right. So this is my fifth favorite theme, and it is the Patriot. It's probably uh, my favorite use of the John Williams solo violin in your mm-hmm. face Schindler's List. Just kidding. I agree. <laughs> um, but I was reading a review uh, on Soundtrack.net, and this is from Dan Goldwasser, and I think he really sums up the listening experience to this perfectly. And he says that after the first five minutes, I realized I stopped whatever I was doing and was just staring into space, enveloped by the theme. And I think that's perfect because it's just a straight up gorgeous theme. It's patriotic and evocative of the time period. Yeah. And I think its warmth just fills you with a sense of pride as well. What you got? Okay, so I just want to give a caveat up top here that this could fluctuate pretty wildly. Like, oh yeah, and, and I and I wanted to to challenge myself because I saw your list ahead of time and I said, okay, there, there's there's some low hanging fruit there. I don't want to I don't want to overlap too much here. So I was only going to allow myself one theme overlap, which we'll eventually get to here. So. This is not necessarily my definitive top five John Williams themes, but these are five great John Williams themes. So the first one that I would highlight would be from the original Star Wars. It's what has come to be known as the Force theme, even though technically, again, if you read those original liner notes, Williams refers to it as Obi-Wan Kenobi's theme. Oh, and it it eventually sort of transcended Obi-Wan to become the embodiment sort of of the force musically. But it's it's the, the, the section that has always been my favorite statement of this theme is sort of the first big one that we get. It's from Binary Sunset. It's when Luke is looking at the setting suns and sort of contemplating his future. And it's one of the most perfectly scored moments that John Williams has ever come up with. Yeah, it's very haunting in a way. It's it's an interesting theme. I mean, it's the force theme. It's very versatile. Um, you can play it sort of in, in either mournful or upbeat ways. Mm-hmm. And I think that owes to its construction, which is the first phrase of it is kind of melancholy in a way. And then the second phrase has a bit more of an upbeat quality. Right. And then the third phrase almost 
can have a, almost a tragic overtone depending on how you play it. So it, in the theme itself, it sort of takes you on a little musical journey. And I, I think it's some of his very best work in terms of just pure thematic writing. Here is the hologram binary sunset. next pick would be the flying theme from E.T. There's there's just so much joy and wonderment and magic in this that, yes. I mean, I don't really have any other words for it other than that. It's I think if you it's, don't get anything out of this theme, it's you're something's wrong with you. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's it's pure, pure musical magic. Um, it's uplifting every time I listen to it. It's one of those things that I start hearing the theme and, you know, you get goosebumps type right. of a situation. It's, it's, he justifiably won the Oscar and for this score. And I think a lot of that had to do with specifically this theme and specifically the scene that it accompanies in the movie. The particular track that I'm going to highlight here is from his greatest hits album. And I don't, I can't remember if this is on the actual soundtrack, but I think it's a little bit different than from what's there because there's this wonderful timpani uh, role throughout that I think is the magical ingredient here. Okay, next I'm going to jump to the main theme from Superman the movie, specifically including the build-up to it that you hear during Prelude and Main Title March, which shockingly was not on the original soundtrack release of this score. Hmm. Um, John Williams substituted in a sort of concert reworking of the main title, but it, it was not the complete version as heard in the film that didn't get released until I think the expanded soundtrack in around 2000, maybe, but you need the buildup because it slowly starts to get this sense of 
something about to take off. Something is about to happen. And then it sort of explodes into this musical theme for Superman. Technically, he has two themes in the film, but this is sort of his primary, what Williams refers to as the Superman march Mm -hmm. theme. And it's so upbeat. It almost in a, in a, in a parody kind of way, like in the wrong hands with, you know, a worse film to accompany it, this could have almost been too much. He could have been ladling it on a little too thick because it is so rousing and, and so optimistic, but it fits completely the Christopher Reeve interpretation Mm -hmm. of Superman. And I, I can't help but smile every time I hear this section of music. Yeah, I always think this one is is more of an underrated march of his. It, you know, you talk about in lesser hands, this this would have been comical. And I think what came to mind for me was the score for Hancock, Ooh. which I felt was, sorry, John Powell, but uh, I felt like it was a Superman ripoff almost. But yeah. Anyway. And John Paul, I love John Paul. He yeah. does great work, but that's not that's not his finest hour. <laughs> anyway, here is the Superman main title march and prelude. My next pick is Welcome to Jurassic Park. Mm. Now, what if I told you that John Williams was not nominated for an Oscar for this score? I would believe you because I know that's true. (laughs) I think that was a sin of omission. And it's weird because he had been double nominated before. Right. And And he's been double nominated many, many times since then. And that year he won for Schindler's List. Right. Um, which is fine, but come on, Jurassic Park, man. Yeah, absolutely. But this particular cue I like because it encompasses everything great about the themes. And I just love how the main theme in the beginning can be kind of distilled down to just this little delicate piano medley and then yes. really amped up for that majestic moment that we know and love. And it really does sound like we're seeing something for the first time and taking part in that sense of wonder. 
it's interesting because my next pick is also from Jurassic Park. Oh. Slightly, slightly different cue, similar thematic material. So I figured we'll, we can talk about this sort of at the same time now. So my probably my favorite John Williams scored moment of all time is from the track titled Journey to the Island, which I don't think he's ever written a better continuous nine minutes than than this cue encompasses. Um, but specifically this moment, which is they've seen the dinosaurs. And uh, this is basically when John Hammond says, welcome to Jurassic Park. Mm -hmm. And I, I get, sh you know, shivers, the chills, the hair is going up on the back of your neck every time I hear this. And the memory of seeing and hearing this for the first time in the theaters back in 1993 is like seared into my mind. I will never forget what I was feeling at that moment as this music is washing over me and I'm seeing dinosaurs that, you know, to my six year old eyes looked completely real at the time. It's, it's a remarkable moment. And the, the little touch that always gets me is the use of choir. Oh, sort yeah. of angelic choir at one particular moment comes in and it's it's absolutely sublime. Right. And it and it holds up so well. It, it could have easily been something really cheesy at oh, the yeah. time. And how many years later has it been? It it still feels new. It's a perfect movie moment, even just outside of the music. I mean, that's it is one of the iconic moments of Spielberg's career. It's one of the iconic pieces of score of John Williams' career. My next pick is a bit of a deep cut. Ooh. Uh, this is from Far and Away. It's the title. Uh, the title of the track is called The Land Race. And this particular cue has been used in several movie trailers. I think mm -hmm. probably because there's such a triumphant build to that climactic moment in the film. Yep. Or I don't know, maybe it's my Irish bias coming into play here. But I just I love the melodies here. And there's some really interesting instrumentation that he chooses to play with more of the the traditional irish pipes uh penny whistles etc yes but this cue really builds on that main theme and just makes you want to run into a big expansive field with your arms spread wide and yelling triumphantly it's fantastic yeah it's a very fun score
All right, so my next is from Jaws, but it's probably not what people would be thinking when you're talking about themes from Jaws. The The shark theme is great. We all love the shark theme. But to me, there's a secondary theme that has always stood out, and it's it's always the theme that I think of first when I think about Jaws. And you hear it a few times in the underscore, particularly once uh, Quint and Hooper and Brody end up out at sea, but you really get a sustained sort of full performance of this theme only during the end titles. And it's this sort of very calm, soothing, semi-sea shanty-ish in, in sort of the way the melody is built, mm-hmm. but it's almost like an exhale. It's like, yeah. it's a musical exhale after sort of the the frenzied nature of the climax. And it sort of just sends the audience out in sort of a, into calm waters, if you will. And uh, it's it's just a, a very peaceful theme that has always stayed with me. My number one pick is the Raiders March slash slash Marion's theme from Raiders of the Lost Ark. (laughs) So in an interview, Spielberg said, Indiana Jones cannot exist without that theme. And of course, that theme would be nothing without Indiana Jones. So we kind of go back to our question here of would a movie be as good without its memorable theme? And the answer is no. I think this is probably one of the best marches ever composed. Mm-hmm. And it it's a call to adventure and it has such a romantic theme inter, interspersed with it. Yeah. And it's a romantic theme that happens when there aren't any romantic scenes even. So it's brilliant. What can I say? It's one of the ultimate heroic themes ever. Mm-hmm. And again, kind of like Superman... If if the if the movie itself was was miscalibrated, this theme probably would not have worked because it's so old fashioned and it's so sort of unabashedly optimistic and upbeat that if you didn't have the right movie to support it, it probably just wouldn't fit. But but it really, really does. It's it's another one of those things where you just you can't help but grin when you hear the Indiana Jones theme, the Raiders March. It's just terrific. And here it is.
So my final pick is a little bit of a left field choice, but I picked it because I wanted to briefly discuss sort of a, a category of theme that that is related to, which is particularly in the, the 70s, 80s, even into the early 90s, John Williams had a particular habit of when scoring an action set piece, giving that scene kind of its own theme that you wouldn't hear throughout the rest of the movie. You would just hear it for this action set piece. Hmm. So the theme that I'm highlighting here is from the asteroid field in The Empire Strikes Back. It's such a ballsy kind of choice to score this sequence with this swaggering kind of jazzy theme that Williams just pulls out of nowhere. And it, it really should not work because it, it's kind of silly in how um, incongruous it is with, with the rest of what you're seeing on screen, but it completely fits. And this is a style of scoring that Williams gradually got away from. Um, he, he could pull it back in occasionally. In fact, the, the most recent Star Wars film, The Rise of Skywalker, there's an, an action sequence where he gives the action sequence its own theme. But the asteroid field is, to me, the ultimate example of I'm giving this action sequence its own thematic identity, and it's it's perfect. Well, this has been an experience. An experience. It's been scorgasmic. Brett, thank you for joining me, as always. Thank you for having me. Well, we hope you join us next week when we talk about Danny Elfman and the art of the main title. Hope to see you then. Bye. Bye.